to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Welcome to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Impeachment, impeachment, impeachment. That's all anyone is talking about these days. Pelosi, Schumer, Schiff, Nadler. It's exasperating. It's deeply disappointing. And frankly, it's boring. It's a sad day in America when our so-called leaders bring the country down to the level of a junkyard brawl. The Democrats are so totally dysfunctional at this point as a result of their Trump dystopia that they have created a scandal out of whole cloth. They have accused the president of colluding with the Russians to influence the 2016 elections, of demanding a quid pro quo from Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky, of bribery, even of extortion. But in the end, they drafted two articles of impeachment that contained none of these terms. In fact, President Trump is not being accused of any impeachable crime at all. The Democrats are so incensed by their own inability to find anything with which to indict the president that they seem to be impeaching him for making them so angry that they can't see straight. Is that impeachable? I don't think so. The articles of impeachment are accusing him of abuse of power without any specifics and obstruction of Congress, which isn't, as far as I know, a crime on its face. There is no such crime. The fact is, they haven't been able to find any crimes, so they've made them up. The articles cite the president for unspecified abuse of power relating to a conversation he had with Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky. In fact, they cited no crimes at all except the ones they made up, based on second- and third-hand testimony, opinions, and lies. And they have dragged the country down into the mud by carrying on what resembled nothing so much as a kangaroo court in which to try the President of the United States. Their phony investigation broke a number of committee rules, in addition to a lot of traditions which Congress has that go back more than 200 years. And the worst thing they did was to refuse to give the defense a fair hearing. The whole procedure was biased, unbalanced, and grossly unfair. They didn't let the Republicans call the witnesses that they wanted to call. In fact, they called almost no witnesses because the Democrat leadership of the committees didn't allow it. And the witnesses themselves were blatantly biased on the liberal side. Many of them were rather large donors to Democrat candidates, and they showed a marked bias against the president. And even more important, only one of their witnesses had actual first-hand knowledge of the subject. And that witness was our EU ambassador, Gordon Sondland, who actually spoke to the president about Ukraine. Under oath, he reported this. He said, quote, I asked the president, what do you want from Ukraine? The president responded, quote, nothing, no quid pro quo. And the president repeated, no quid pro quo, multiple times. This was a very short call, and I recall the president was in a bad mood, unquote. Well, his being 
in a bad mood is not an impeachable offense. But that one witness made it clear that the president wanted no quid pro quo, specifically regarding Ukraine, period. In the face of all the other secondhand testimony, that should have ended the discussion and the hearings, frankly. But of course, it didn't. In fact, it was largely ignored by the Democrats. But the kangaroo court, under the watchful eye of Adam Schiff and later on Gerald Nadler, moved inexorably forward, stopping for nothing, not even the truth or a semblance of fairness. And then, three things happened this past week that just made my blood boil. The first was House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was asked why this was all being done with such glaring speed. And she answered, quote, Speed? It's been going on 22 months, two and a half years, actually, unquote. And her implication was clear. This was done methodically and carefully and over a period of two and a half years. But wait a minute. The telephone call that was at the center of this whole impeachment investigation took place on July 25th, less than five months ago. How could she have known about that two and a half years ago? Lies, my friends. More lies. They can't even get their stories straight. Their only purpose is to bring down this president who dared to beat their candidate in the last election, and, while they're at it, to take down the infrastructure of 240-plus years of process based on the wisdom of our Constitution that they have sworn to uphold. And that's another thing. All the Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee, as if reading from a script, gave their closing speeches, and all of them referred to the oath that they took, in which they had sworn to uphold the Constitution. But that is hypocrisy at its worst. They're not upholding the Constitution. They're destroying everything that the Constitution stands for. This kangaroo court was a disgrace to all the values and principles on which our government is based. The House Democrats who participated in this sham are a dishonor to our Constitution, our government, and our nation. And the third thing that happened this week happened on Monday. Even as we have been waiting for the House to vote on the articles of impeachment, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer has begun to replicate the corrupt procedures that took place in the House committees last month. Although he is a minority leader, because Republicans have more seats in the Senate than the Democrats do, He has already listed four names of the people he wants to call as witnesses in the impeachment trial. But he objects strenuously to the Republicans calling any witnesses at all. He claims that the hearing should be, quote, focused on the facts that the House presented, not on the conspiracy theories that some established liar puts forward, unquote. (laughs) This is too much. His inference is that only the Democrats have the facts, while the Republicans have only conspiracy theories. What does minority mean? Chuck Schumer seems to be unclear on the concept. And talk about hypocrisy. 
You must already have heard, or maybe you remember, that during the Clinton impeachment trial, it was Chuck Schumer who adamantly opposed calling witnesses. He called it, quote, theater, unquote. But look how his tune has changed now that the president under impeachment is a Republican. How do you spell hypocrite? So this is what I want to say. The congressional hearings were a farce and a sham. Yet they resulted in two articles of impeachment that could, theoretically, result in the removal of a president. It has never happened before, and frankly, it's not likely to happen now. But the thought that it could happen puts the future of this country in the crosshairs of another civil war. That's how much anger this process has generated. Ironically, just this week, some real crimes have been revealed as a result of the scandal perpetrated by the Democrats, which relates to the admission, the bragging by, by former Vice President Joe Biden about how he withheld a very large amount of money, a billion dollars in loan guarantees from the Ukraine government unless they fired the prosecutor who was investigating his son and the company he worked for. If this isn't quid pro quo, I don't know what is. One American News, which is a conservative news outlet that does a phenomenal job presenting real news in real time, OAN, which they're called, just produced a three-hour special in which the president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, presented his findings from a trip to Ukraine. He took this trip to discover the truth about the accusations that the Democrats have leveled against the president and the level of corruption that has reached into the highest levels of American government right up to the office of the vice president of the United States, Joe Biden. Giuliani produced real witnesses with first-hand knowledge about the activities of Joe Biden and his son, Tucker, in the Ukraine and the deep corruption in which the Bidens were actively involved. This program is a must-see because it shows, in clear contrast to the farce that the congressional hearings represented, how evidence should be collected and analyzed, how a solid case can be made fairly and properly, and how the unvarnished and unadulterated truth can be revealed in the light of day for all to see. We have a long way to go before we begin to see the longer-range impact from what we are living through now. The corruption in our own system, in the deep state that the Democrats hasten to assure us doesn't exist, in our senior congressmen and senators playing fast and loose with the truth, with the rules, with our tradition, and with our Constitution, which they all swore to uphold. The American people have been swindled. Our representative government has turned against us in order for those whom we sent to Congress to represent us to somehow build their own power base and ensure their own personal wealth, to hold onto it by all means in order to preserve their senior positions at the expense of the American people whom they are supposed to represent. I'm sick of it, and I'm guessing you are too. It's time to hold them accountable for their hubris, their arrogance, 
and their willingness to subvert honesty and fairness for power and wealth. It's time to send them home. Okay, now, last week I talked about the shooting in New Jersey in which four people were murdered in cold blood. Within hours, the authorities were already calling it both a hate crime and a terrorist attack. And they were right on both counts. It became very apparent very quickly that this was not only a hate crime, it was an anti-Semitic attack that had targeted a kosher grocery store in Jersey City. And I promised you last week that I would talk more about this because the rise of anti-Semitism in the United States is a serious threat to everything that this country stands for. Now, during the week, I wrote an article that you can find on AmericaOutloud.com called Trump Gives Antisemitism a Sucker Punch. It's about the attack, but also about an executive order that President Donald Trump signed last week, which expanded his administration's interpretation of race and national origin to include Judaism. It was a move that extended the protections of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to cover Jewish students on college campuses today. It's not a secret that Jewish students face serious harassment on many college campuses around the U.S. And yet, nobody really wants to talk about it. The rabid and blatantly anti-Semitic environment that pervades many colleges around the country has made this necessary, and honestly, in my humble opinion, it's long overdue. Because of a well-organized effort on the part of anti-Jewish students and on-campus groups, particularly Palestinians and those who support them, Jewish students have been harassed, bullied, and hounded for years by groups of well-organized left-wing and Palestinian activists. The executive order is an important part of the Trump's administration's broader efforts to combat what it considers anti-Israel and anti-Semitic movements in America. But the order has ignited a debate over federal funding, free speech, views about Israel, and it has prompted renewed questions about how Jewish people should be classified when they are victimized by anti-Semitic attacks. In the historical consideration of how to reduce institutionalized prejudice in this country, Jews have not been included in the discussion until now. When federal legislation was considered in the past, it was largely focused on alleviating the hardships faced by black Americans, Latinos, Asians, and other minority groups. And in fact, during America's civil rights movement in the 1960s, Jews were at the forefront of the demonstrations. But Jews, who represent a very small minority in this country, were never considered in the mix during the drafting of these bills, even though Jews have been singled out throughout history, including the history of our own country, for exclusion, harassment, and even lynching and murder. One of the first lynchings that happened to a Jew in America occurred in 1915, when Jewish factory manager Leo Frank was convicted of a crime he did not commit and was dragged from the jail cell by an anti-Semitic mob who lynched him. It was a disgusting attack on law and order, and it was one of the earliest organized murders of a Jewish American, but it was certainly not the last. There is a disturbing trend that is appearing throughout the country, one in which deadly attacks on Jews are forgiven, excused, and even encouraged 
attacks on unarmed Jewish communities, often in their places of worship or near their homes. The recent deadly attacks on the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh and the Chabad Synagogue in Poway, California, earlier this year, are the continuation of a growing trend in anti-Semitic attacks in this country. And it's a trend we need to pay attention to. Have you ever heard that throughout history, Jews have been the proverbial canary in the coal mine? And this is because when, in any society, the Jews have been harassed and attacked and marginalized, usually by the government, but sometimes just by the population of the place where they live, when the government doesn't intervene, it is not long before other groups also suffer from the same persecution. The persecution of Jews is just where it starts. And we need to learn from history so it doesn't happen again. Now I have to take a short break so that you can hear from the great people at America Out Loud, but I'll be right back with more about the growing threat of anti-Semitism in the U.S. and what it means for all of us who still believe in America, the land of the free and the home of the brave. As we say, let the silent voices be heard. Shadow Bannon, editing, censorship, blocking, and adherence to political correctness are seen as serious threats to our God-given right of free speech. Suppressing free speech, the very cornerstone of our society, is not in the best interest of our listeners, readers, and those who provide our content. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. So let's get back to what we were discussing before. Did you know that right here in America, anti-Semitism has reached such alarming proportions that the president felt it was necessary to issue an executive order offering protection to Jewish college students under the Civil Rights Act? And did you know that of all the most noticeable minority groups in America, Jews are among the smallest in number. That's what I said, the smallest. So here are a bunch of interesting facts that may help you wrap your head around all this. There are approximately 36 million black Americans living in the United States, and they represent about 13% of the population. There are about 50 million Latinos who represent more than 18% of the population but there are only about 5.3 million Jews in the U.S., and they represent only a little over 2% of the population. Did you get that? Black Americans are 13%, Latinos are 18%, and Jews are 2%. Does that surprise you? Well, here's another set of numbers that may surprise you even more. Did you know which group is the most targeted for hate crimes in the United States? If you thought Muslims, well, you'd be wrong. By far, it is the Jews of America who are the most targeted for hate crimes, and the numbers are growing. According to the FBI, in 2018, there were 838 incidents of hate crimes against Jews. That represents nearly 60% of all religion-based hate crimes, 60%. 
That was huge compared to the number of hate crimes, for example, against Muslims, which the FBI reported at 188 incidents, or 14.6%. That's only 25% of the number of attacks on Jews. And attacks against Jews rose by 37% in 2018 from the year before and were becoming increasingly violent. Now, what is happening on college campuses is no less disturbing. Colleges were always supposed to be where a student could go and openly discuss ideas, however divergent or controversial they were, and the college campus was always the center of free speech. (laughs) No more. Political correctness and what the left calls wokeness has taken over, and speech is no longer free and can even be dangerous. The rapid growth of anti-Semitism on college campuses and the rate at which the number of hate crimes has grown over the last decade is greatly disproportionate to the size of the Jewish population. Jewish students, especially those who are allied with Jewish or pro-Israel organizations, like Hillel, for example, which is one of the most universal Jewish organizations on college campuses, these Jewish students are being harassed, threatened, and even beaten for no other reason than that they are Jewish and that they support Israel. So President Trump was absolutely right when he wrote in the executive order, It shall be the policy of the executive branch to enforce Title VI, that's Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, to enforce Title VI against prohibited forms of discrimination rooted in anti-Semitism as vigorously as against all other forms of discrimination prohibited by Title VI. Unquote. What does the new executive order actually change? Well, the order requires federally funded educational institutions not to discriminate based on race, national origin, or color. That's Title VI. Under this order, the president added a category, which is Jewish students. According to the terms set out in the executive order, colleges and universities that support or tolerate anti-Semitic or anti-Israel movements the most prominent being the Palestinian-centric organizations, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, BDS, and the National Students for Justice in Palestine, NSJP, could now be under threat of having their funding within the Department of Education ended. Because both these groups promote the destruction of the State of Israel in one way or another, and their agenda on college campuses is to disrupt pro-Israel organizations and their programs and harass their members, they would qualify for being disqualified for federal funding. While protections from racial, color, and national origin discrimination are covered under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act and have been since 1964, religious discrimination is not. And although in the past the Department of Education has nevertheless interpreted the law to protect students of any religion from discrimination based on shared ethnic, racial, or national origin, Jewish students have nevertheless found themselves without support from many of the college administrations. They have instead found themselves largely without a friend in colleges where anti-Semitism runs rampant and the Jewish students have almost no one to turn to.
Antisemitism is a very old evil. It is one that has been alive for thousands of years. President Trump drew a line in the sand when it comes to anti-Semitism. He said, quote, the vile, hate-filled poison of anti-Semitism must be condemned and confronted everywhere and anywhere it appears, unquote. It's not the ultimate solution, this change in Title VI. And maybe President Trump has only put his finger in the dike. Maybe there is no ultimate solution for deep-seated hatred. But at least the president has given the colleges good reason to make sure that the anti-Semitism that has been poisoning the well on college campuses is no longer alive and well in their schools. And I'm okay with that. Now, the next story in the news that I want to tell you about is on the other side of the world, but it's related to what I just talked about because anti-Semitism is prevalent throughout most of the world and almost all of the Muslim world. What I want to talk about are the confrontations along the Gaza-Israel border. There was a brief hiatus in the weekly demonstrations that have been going on since March 30th of 2018. But they are back in force, and Hamas, which rules the Gaza Strip, came out with a new statement that got very little attention in the Western media. Hamas says, quote, We'll force the new rules of the game, unquote, if Israel, quote, does not stop border control between Gaza and Israel and the siege of Gaza, unquote. That, my friends, is a joke of colossal proportions, although they don't think it's funny at all. Hamas leaders are putting up another line in the sand based on lies and misinformation. Because there would be no need to have such a strict border control between Israel and Gaza if Hamas didn't keep trying to use that border as a launching pad for deadly attacks on Israel and on the Israeli towns that are located nearby. So for Hamas to demand that Israel stop a non-existent siege of Gaza and not have strong border control is patently absurd. There is no siege. Quite the opposite. Israel is continually sending truckloads of badly needed food and medicine and bottled water into Gaza. What there is, is a border, a real border, between Israel and Gaza. And Hamas is continually trying to infiltrate it in order to attack Israelis and also to smuggle weapons into Gaza, which is run by Hamas. It has been 32 years since Hamas was founded by the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. That was in 1987. And today, the people of Gaza are celebrating that anniversary, no doubt with the strong encouragement of Hamas. And the way they celebrate it is with renewed attacks against Israel across the border. One of the senior leaders of Hamas is a man by the name of Usama al-Mazini, and he just said that Hamas will not hesitate to enforce their new rules, their new rules, if Israel does not lift the so-called siege of Gaza. He repeated essentially what had already been said. Now, what are the new rules? He pledged that Hamas would never back down from its determination to continue what he called the Palestinian fight. And he said these rights are not negotiable. 
Well, there's nothing new about that. It's written in their charter. And he continued, the cowardly enemy only understands the language of force. He's talking about Israel. And does not understand anything but the language of the gun. So speak with it in the language which it understands. Gather your strength and continue to hit it with you and your brothers in a joint operations room. Unquote. Those are strange words coming from an organization that steals from its own people in order to continue its war with Israel. Its determination to destroy the state of Israel is so deep-seated and so pathological, and it's embedded right in its own charter, which was written in 1987 and renewed in 2017. Now, when the world tries to support the people of Gaza, who live, most of them, in abject poverty... And the unemployment rate is also above 50%. So when the world tries to send them help, their contributions are diverted to Hamas. And they rule Gaza with an iron fist. Hamas rules Gaza. So when help comes in, they get it first. And they take it and they use it. And very little of what they get ever gets to the people of Gaza. The people of Gaza are poor because of Hamas. The countries of the world send them money, food, medicine, oil for heating their homes and cooking their food, even concrete to reconstruct the homes that were destroyed or damaged by war. But all this money, like I said, goes through Hamas, which steals it from them and gives it to its own elite and to its fighters. And the concrete? That doesn't go to rebuild their home, maybe 10% does. That goes into the construction of terrorist tunnels, that Hamas builds under the border into Israel. It is through these tunnels that Hamas fighters try to get into Israeli territory and carry out terrorist attacks. To give you an idea of how much the people of Gaza are suffering and how Hamas has made that happen, Hamas has let Gaza's infrastructure deteriorate to the extent that the people of Gaza no longer have electricity for more than a couple of hours a day, and they don't have clean water for drinking or bathing or cooking, and they don't have the benefit of five sewage treatment plants, which were operative when Hamas took control of Gaza, but which Hamas has let deteriorate until they are no longer functional. So today, are you ready for this? Millions of gallons of raw sewage run from Gaza into the Mediterranean Sea every day. And that's where the people of Gaza go to try to cool off when the weather gets unbearably hot in the summertime. Remember, they don't have air conditioning because they don't have electricity. Just think about that for a moment, swimming in raw sewage. Ugh. Mazzini also promised to ensure Palestinians the right of return for every Palestinian Authority and Gazan so-called refugee. And that's another story, so let me give you that. It's amazing, you know, the people we call the Palestinians are the only so-called refugees in the world who have their own United Nations agency. It's called UNRWA. And they are the only so-called refugees in the world who have never been repatriated or absorbed by the other nations. And not only are the people who fled from the brand new state of Israel in 1948. Not only are they still considered refugees, but so are their children, 
their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, and their sisters, and their cousins, and their aunts, and so forth. Now, the original number of Arabs who fled in 1948 was something like 700,000. And by the way, roughly the same number of Jews fled from Arab countries at the same time. They are not refugees, and they don't have a refugee agency in the United Nations taking care of them or keeping them in refugee camps. By 2018, the number of Arab refugees had swollen from 700,000 to 5 million people. And Hamas is claiming the right for all 5 million people to, quote, return, unquote, to what is now the Jewish state of Israel. No country could absorb that kind of population. And, and Israel is a tiny country, as I've told you before, something like the size of Vermont and with a population of barely 9 million. Yet on November 16th, just a month ago, the General Assembly voted again to renew the mandate for UNRWA and extend the refugee status of these 5 million people, some of whom, by the way, live in the United States. So uh, I don't know that they want to go back. But anyway, for people who have been so-called refugees for 72 years, it's astonishing. But that, my friends, is what Hamas and the Palestinian leadership call the right of return. And by the way, you might be interested to know that the right of return is a term that was appropriated from the Israelis. When they declared the founding of the Jewish state, Israel, more than 72 years ago, they promised that every Jew, no matter where they live in the world, will have the right of return to the new Jewish state of Israel. It is the only Jewish state in the world, and it is or can be the home of every Jew in the world. Israel has kept its promise. Jews came as refugees from the ashes of the concentration camps of Nazi Europe, from the hostile Arab countries of North Africa, and from the oppressive and anti-Semitic Soviet Union. And they returned to their biblical homeland. But a right of return to the great-grandchildren of people who voluntarily left the country 72 years ago, that's absurd. Because in such a small country, the absorption of 5 million enemies of the state would not be an act of kindness. It would be an act of suicide for the Jewish state. And Israel will never agree to commit suicide. So now let's get back to the main story, Gaza. What Hamas is demanding is also ridiculous because it's totally unrealistic. Israel has an enormously powerful military and in fact is considered, despite the country's small size, one of the best in the world. Hamas's military power and ability don't come close to Israel's, and in a real war in which Israel does not pull any of its punches, as it has in almost every war it's had with Hamas in the past, Hamas would be defeated and Gaza would be totally destroyed. That hasn't happened yet because Israel has its own rules of engagement that forbid its soldiers from attacking unarmed civilians, particularly women and children. This sometimes puts Israeli soldiers in very dangerous situations, but those are their orders and they know that if they disobey them, they could face court-martial and prison time. Israeli pilots on bombing runs over Gaza have actually turned back without engaging Hamas because civilians were in the target area. I've written all about this in my book, Hamas, the Story of Islamic Jihad on Israel's Front Lines. You can find it in the America Out Loud bookstore at americaoutloud.com. Now, I'm going to take another short break, but I'll be right back with a story about the wackiest teenager on the planet 
whose so-called wisdom is being sorely compromised by her totally misinformed sense of her own importance. So stay tuned. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called the Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. So imagine this, a teenage girl has been lionized by an adoring public who applauds her rudeness and outspokenness about climate change and makes her an international star. That is Greta Thunberg. But you know, there's more to this story than just a quick jab, so here it is. Greta Thunberg, whose full name is Greta Tintin Eleonora Ernman Thunberg, is 16 years old and grew up in Sweden where she was born in 2003. She has been diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, obsessive compulsive disorder, and selective mutism. She says about herself, some people can let things go. I can't, unquote. She says that when she was eight years old, she became aware of the issue of climate change and couldn't understand why no one was doing anything about it. And when she was 15, she began spending her school days outside the Swedish parliament to call for 
Stronger Action on Global Warming. She did this by holding up a sign that said, in Swedish of course, School Strike for the Climate. It didn't take long for other students to join her in similar protests in their own communities, so it was like a network of high school protesters. They got together and organized a school climate strike movement, and they called it Fridays for Future. Now, Thunberg has said this about herself. I was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, OCD, and selective mutism. That basically means I only speak when I think it's necessary. Now is one of those moments. I think that in many ways we autistic are the normal ones, and the rest of the people are pretty strange, especially when it comes to the sustainability crisis where everybody keeps saying the climate change is an existential threat and the most important issue of all, and yet they just carry on like before." Unquote. Her parents were her guinea pigs. Greta, it seems, is very persuasive. And at her urging, her father became a vegetarian. He gave up meat altogether. And even more seriously, her mother gave up flying, which ended her career as an international opera singer. Good golly. In her own very short career, Thunberg has had a remarkable effect on the people she's been speaking to. Among other things, she has received a number of honors and awards. In September 2019, she addressed the UN Climate Action Summit in New York. And in December, she became the youngest person to ever receive Time Magazine's Person of the Year Award with a full cover portrait. Thunberg was even nominated for the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize. Now, when Greta was invited to attend the Climate Action Summit at UN headquarters in New York in September, she came, but she didn't fly over. She traveled across the Atlantic from Plymouth, England to New York on a 60-foot carbon-neutral racing yacht equipped with solar panels and underwater turbines. She did this, she said, in order to underscore her message that the greenhouse gas emissions caused by air travel are contributing heavily to climate change. In Sweden, she is known for spreading the concept of flight shame. That is shaming people who fly in order to encourage people not to fly. Her trip to America took two weeks. It was billed as a carbon-neutral transatlantic crossing, and its purpose was to demonstrate the importance of Thunberg's message that reducing emissions was essential to the survival of the planet. France 24, a French news outlet, reported that several crew members flew to New York in order to bring the yacht back to Europe. I don't have to explain the irony in that. After she arrived here in August, in the Canadian cities of Montreal, Edmonton, and Vancouver, and then she came to the United States and appeared at New York City, Iowa City, Los Angeles, Charlotte, North Carolina, Denver, Colorado, and the Standing Rock Indian Reservation in the Dakotas. Thunberg began every speech by acknowledging that she was standing on native or indigenous land. She said, quote, In acknowledging the enormous injustices inflicted upon these people, we must also mention the many enslaved and indentured servants whose labor the world still profits from today, unquote. 
It had been her intention to attend the 2019 United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP25, in Chile. But when that was canceled because of the massive uprisings there, she asked her following on social media for help getting back to Europe, to Spain, where the conference had been shifted to. The message she posted was, quote, Now I need to find a way to cross the Atlantic in November. If anyone could help me find transport, I would be so grateful, unquote. And someone did. An Australian, who had been sailing around the world with his wife, offered Thunberg a lift aboard their 48-foot catamaran, La Vagabonde. And on November 13th, Thunberg began her voyage back to Europe from Hampton, Virginia. Back in Europe, she pulled a stunt, which is the reason for this story, in this section of the Friedman Report. She tweeted, quote, traveling on overcrowded trains through Europe, and I'm finally on my way home, unquote. Attached to the message was a photo of her sitting on the floor of her train, surrounded by luggage and an empty food box, all hers, I suppose, and this was intended to illustrate the crowded trains that she had to contend with in Germany, where she had to sit on the floor with her luggage. Her message was, presumably, that the train was too crowded for her to get a seat. Poor thing. Only according to Deutsche Bahn, the national railway company, her seat and the seats of her companion were in first class for most of the trip. Deutsche Bahn also tweeted this, quote, It would have been even nicer if you had also reported how friendly and competently our team served you at your seat in first class, unquote. Have fame and fortune gone to her little girl head? She later tweeted that the fact that she didn't first sit in a seat wasn't meant as a knock against Deutsche Bahn. And then she wrote, quote, This is no problem, of course, and I never said it was. Overcrowded trains is a great sign because it means the demand for train travel is high, unquote. Well, you've got to give the kid points for quick thinking after you take away points for rudeness and behaving like a brat. You just can't make this stuff up. But I do have something to say to Greta Thunberg, something that most adults seem to be afraid to say. Greta, you are still a child. You do not have the wisdom to blame the rest of the world for the problems you see. You pick and choose your targets, taking on the easy ones where there is free speech, and you can get away with saying anything you want. But what you don't recognize, and no doubt don't want to recognize, is that you have inherited a world that has a heck of a lot to offer. It's not dying, but it is changing. It is going through changes just like it has for millennia, sometimes faster, sometimes slower, sometimes abruptly. And we need to adapt to those changes if we can, because our weather and our environment are continually changing. The continual growth of knowledge is what allows you to choose your form of transportation and gives you the freedom to take two weeks to travel from the United States to Europe. You're a child and you still have the luxury of being free from adult responsibility. So you have that time. You can take two weeks. But Greta, you are squandering the precious years of your childhood and you will never get them back. You should be in school, learning history, learning economics, and the science that you seem to think the rest of us don't understand. And here's a thought. If you really want to do something for the environment, stop browbeating the countries that are already doing the most. 
What about India, with its immense poverty and pollution? And China, with its air so dirty that its citizens must wear masks in order to breathe? And what about Iran, with its huge nuclear program and its threat to use nuclear weapons on its neighbors? How about that for pollution? And instead of browbeating your mother so much that she agreed to give up her career, or your father to stop eating meat, how about you stop haranguing other people and start learning the things that you were apparently never taught because you dropped out of school before you had a full education? You are still a child, Greta, and your words of advice fall on the deaf ears of those you want to convert, but who don't believe that you really know enough about what you're talking about to begin to teach them. Go back home, Greta. Go to school where you may learn from the wisdom of others who have the knowledge and the life experience to be real teachers. Then come back, when you're all grown up, and let's talk. And here's one more. AOC is the gift that keeps giving. The depths of her foolishness, no, her downright stupidity, is really a head shaker. How could anyone be that clueless and be elected to Congress? But then, giving the shenanigans of Congress over the past few months, maybe it's pretty obvious. But anyway, the story. Do you remember when Amazon announced that it would be building its second headquarters in New York, just next to AOC's own district, and that they would be bringing in 25,000 new jobs with an average salary of $150,000? and that AOC took credit for destroying that opportunity. So when Amazon finally gave New York the finger and canceled its plans for a second headquarters in New York, AOC rejoiced and took full credit for the company's defeat in this huge project. So why is this a story now? Well, Amazon has decided to open a small satellite office in Manhattan that will create 1,500 jobs. And it won't be in AOC's corner of New York City. So what does she have to say to that? Listen to this tweet. Won't you look at that? Amazon is coming to New York anyway, without requiring the public to finance shady deals, helipad handouts for Jeff Bezos, and corporate giveaways. Maybe the Trump administration should focus more on cutting public assistance to billionaires instead of poor families. Whatever is she talking about? The Amazon footprint of their satellite office will be tiny compared to the huge plant they were planning on building that would have created a, a huge number of jobs and helped the community of small businesses and shops and restaurants around it flourish. The biggest aid to the people in her district would have been the 25,000 new jobs, some of which would have gone to some of them. But AOC seems to be missing the forest for the trees. She claims to have scared off Amazon from building their massive project, and she's proud of it. But she cost her district and the surrounding area 25,000 new jobs and a facelift for the entire region. And she's proud of it. And to prove it, she posted a picture of herself slumped lazily into a yellow couch with her hands folded and a big cat-that-ate-the-canary smile on her face. And she tweeted, Me, waiting on the haters to apologize after we were proven right on Amazon and saved the public billions. In other words, if you don't agree that sending 25,000 new jobs packing is a good idea, you're a hater. 
And these are the people she wants to vote for her. Haters. Oh, and by the way, in case you missed it, this week she announced that she also plans to vote against the USMCA because it doesn't fit perfectly into her bold plan for the progressive America of her dreams. It does happen to be one of the best international trade deals in history. But that doesn't seem to matter. You just can't make this stuff up. And finally today, I want to give credit to our president, Donald J. Trump. Over the last few months, he has been uncharacteristically restrained regarding this entire impeachment circus, in which the worst behavior I have ever seen has been displayed by our Democrat legislators who have tried every trick, every ploy, to trap the president in a crime or impeachable offense. They have lied and bullied and grandstand, and they have pulled rank, even when they didn't have it. They have falsely accused, and they have failed to apologize or retract their false accusations. And they have destroyed good people in the process, people who served their country with honor and honesty and integrity and did not deserve to be treated so badly. Finally, on Tuesday, the president struck back. He spoke his piece in a fiery letter to Nancy Pelosi. It was five and a half pages long, so I can't read it all on the show. But I will read you bits and pieces, and I hope you will take the trouble to read the rest online. Dear Madam Speaker, I want to express my strongest and most powerful protest against the partisan impeachment crusade being pursued by the Democrats in the House of Representatives. This impeachment represents an unprecedented and unconstitutional abuse of power by Democrat lawmakers, unequaled in nearly two and a half centuries of American legislative history. The articles of impeachment introduced by the House Judiciary Committee are not recognizable under any standard of constitutional theory, interpretation, or jurisprudence. They include no crimes, no misdemeanors, no offenses, whatever. By proceeding with your invalid impeachment, you are violating your oaths of office, you are breaking your allegiance to the Constitution, and you are declaring open war on American democracy. You dare to invoke the Founding Fathers in pursuit of this election nullification scheme, yet your spiteful actions display unfettered contempt for America's founding, and your egregious conduct threatens to destroy that which our fathers pledged their lives to build. Everyone, you included, knows what is really happening. Your chosen candidate lost the election in 2016 in an electoral college landslide, and you and your party have never recovered from this defeat. You are unwilling and unable to accept the verdict issued at the ballot box during the great election of 2016. So you have spent three years attempting to overturn the will of the American people and nullify their votes. You view democracy as your enemy. You are the one interfering in America's elections. You are the one subverting America's democracy. You are the ones obstructing justice. I write this letter to you for the purpose of history and to put my thoughts on a permanent and indelible record. 100 years from now, when people look back at this affair, 
I want them to understand it and learn from it so that it can never happen to another president again. Sincerely yours, Donald J. Trump, President of the United States of America. Thank you, President Trump. Thank you for your courage and your fortitude and your willingness to withstand the blows of this perverse Democrat conspiracy. Godspeed, Mr. President, and God bless. Well, we've come to the end of another hour, and I thank you for spending it with me. I hope you have a good week, and I look forward to being with you again next week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report.